This is Guns and Butter. Immediately after the North Tower was struck that morning, Michael Hess, who was New York City's Corporation Counsel, and Barry Jennings, the Deputy Director of the Emergency Services Department of the New York City Housing Authority. Both men followed the instruction that, whenever there was an emergency, they were to meet Mayor Giuliani at his emergency management center on the 23rd floor of Building 7. The North Tower was struck at 8.46, so they arrived about 9 o'clock. They found, however, that everyone had already left. Calling to find out what they should do, they were told to get out of the building quickly. They started running down the stairs, but when they got to the sixth floor, Jennings reported, there was an enormous explosion that knocked the landing out from under them, and he was able just barely to hold on and then pull himself up and then get back up to the eighth floor where they broke a window and signaled for help. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center 7. David Ray Griffin is a prolific author, theologian, and lecturer. For the past several years, he has committed himself to exposing the fraud of the official story of the attacks of September 11th. He is author of The New Pearl Harbor, The 9-11 Commission Report, Omissions and Distortions, Christian Faith and the Truth Behind 9-11, Debunking 9-11 Debunking, an answer to popular mechanics and other defenders of the official conspiracy theory. 9-11 Contradictions, The New Pearl Harbor Revisited, 9-11 The Cover-Up and the Expose, Osama bin Laden, Dead or Alive, and his very latest, The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7, Why the Final Official Report about 9-11 is Unscientific and False. Today's presentation on his latest book was the keynote address at the 5th Annual 9-11 Film Festival in Oakland, California on September 10, 2009. David Ray Griffin. Good evening. At 5.21 in the afternoon of 9-11, almost seven hours after the Twin Towers had come down, Building 7 of the World Trade Center also came down. The collapse of this building was from the very beginning considered a mystery. The same should have been true, of course, for the collapse of the Twin Towers, but they had been hit by planes, which had ignited big fires in them, and many people assumed that this combination of causes was sufficient to bring these buildings down. But WT7 had not been hit by a plane. So it was apparently the first steel-framed high-rise building in the known universe to have collapsed because of fire alone. New York Times writer James Glanz quoted a structural engineer as saying, within the structural engineering community, WTC7 is considered to be much more important to understand than the Twin Towers because engineers have no answer to the question Why did seven come down? From a purely scientific perspective, of course, there would have been an obvious answer. Scientists, presupposing the regularity of nature, operate on the principle that like effects 
generally imply like causes. Scientists are therefore loath to posit unprecedented causes for common phenomena. By 9-11, the collapse of steel-framed high-rise buildings had become a rather common phenomenon, which most Americans had seen on television. And in every one of these cases, the building had been brought down by explosives in the process known as controlled demolition. From a scientific perspective, therefore, the obvious assumption would have been that World Trade Center 7 came down because explosives had been used to remove its steel supports. However, the public discussion of the destruction of the World Trade Center did not occur in a scientific context, but in a highly charged political context. America had just been attacked. It was almost universally believed by foreign terrorists who had flown hijacked planes into the Twin Towers. And in response, the Bush administration had launched a war on terror. The idea that even one of the buildings had been brought down by explosives would have implied that the attacks had not been a surprise. So this idea could not be entertained by many minds in private, let alone in public. This meant that people had to believe, or at least pretend to believe, that Building 7 had been brought down by fire, even though, as James Glantz wrote, experts said, no building like it, a modern steel-reinforced high-rise, had ever collapsed because of an uncontrolled fire. And so this building's collapse had to be considered a mystery insofar as it was considered at all. But this was not much. Although World Trade Center 7 was a 47-story building, which in most places would have been the tallest building in the city, if not the state, it was dwarfed by the 110-story Twin Towers. It was also dwarfed by them in the ensuing media coverage. And so, Glantz wrote, the collapse of Building 7 was a mystery that would probably have captured the attention of the city and the world if the Twin Towers had not also come down. As it was, however, the mystery of Building 7's collapse was seldom discussed. For those few people who were paying attention, the mysteriousness of this collapse was not lessened by the first official report about it, which was issued by FEMA in 2002. This report put forward what it considered the best hypothesis as to why the building had collapsed, but then added that this hypothesis had only a low probability of occurrence. This FEMA report, in fact, increased the mystery, thanks to an appendix to the report written by three professors at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. This appendix reported that a piece of steel from World Trade Center 7 had melted so severely that it had gaping holes in it, making it look like a piece of Swiss cheese. The New York Times, pointing out that the fires in the building could not have been hot enough to melt the steel, referred to this discovery as the deepest mystery uncovered in the investigation. The task of providing the definitive explanation of the collapse of World Trade Center 7 was given to NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Although NIST had been expected to issue its report on this building along with its report on the Twin Towers, which came out in 2005, it did not. NIST then continued to delay this report until August of 2008, at which time it issued a draft for public comment. 
At a press briefing, Chime Sunder, NIST lead investigator, declared that the reason for the collapse of World Trade Center 7 is no longer a mystery. Also, announcing that NIST did not find any evidence that explosives were used to bring the building down, he said, science is really behind what we said. In the remainder of this lecture, I will show you that both of those statements were false. With regard to the question of science, far from being supported by good science, NIST's report repeatedly makes its case by resorting to scientific fraud. Before going into details, let me point out that if NIST did engage in fraudulent science, this would not be particularly surprising. NIST is an agency of the U.S. Department of Commerce. During the years it was writing its reports on the World Trade Center, therefore, it was an agency of the Bush-Cheney administration. In 2004, the Union of Concerned Scientists put out a document charging this administration with distortion of scientific knowledge for partisan political ends. By the end of the Bush administration, this document had been signed by over 15,000 scientists, including 52 Nobel laureates and 63 recipients of the National Medal of Science. Moreover, a scientist who formerly works for NIST has reported that it has been fully hijacked from the scientific into the political realm, with the result that scientists working for NIST lost their scientific independence and became little more than hired guns. Referring in particular to NIST's work on the World Trade Center, he said everything had to be approved by the Department of Commerce, the National Security Agency, and the Office of Management and Budget, an arm of the Executive Office of the President, which had a policy person specifically delegated to provide oversight on this work. One of the general principles of scientific work is that its conclusions must not be dictated by non-scientific concerns. In other words, by any concern other than that of discovering the truth. This former NIST employee's statement gives us reason to suspect that NIST, while preparing its report on World Trade Center 7, would have been functioning as a political, not a scientific agency. The amount of fraud in this report suggests that this was indeed the case. According to the National Science Foundation, the major types of scientific fraud are fabrication, falsification, and plagiarism. There is no sign that NIST is guilty of plagiarism, but it is certainly guilty of fabrication, which can be defined as making up results, and falsification, meaning either changing or omitting data. The omission of evidence is so massive, in fact, that I will treat it as a distinct type of scientific fraud. As philosopher Alfred North Whitehead said in his 1925 book, Science and the Modern World, it is easy enough to find a self-consistent theory provided that you are content to disregard half your evidence. The pursuit of truth, he added, requires an unflinching determination to take the whole evidence into account. NIST, however, seemed to manifest an unflinching determination 
to disregard half of the relevant evidence. Some of the evidence ignored by NIST is physical evidence that explosives were used to bring down World Trade Center 7. I will begin with the piece of steel from World Trade Center 7 that had been melted so severely that it looked like a piece of Swiss cheese. Explaining why he had called this the deepest mystery uncovered in the investigation, New York Times writer James Glantz wrote, the steel apparently melted away, but no fire in any of the buildings was believed to be hot enough to melt the steel outright. Glantz's statement was, in fact, quite an understatement. The full truth is that the fires in the building could not have brought the steel anywhere near the temperature, about 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit, needed for it to melt. The professors who reported this piece of steel in the appendix to the FEMA report said, a detailed study into the mechanisms that cause this phenomenon is needed. Arden Beamant, who was the director of NIST when it took on the World Trade Center project, said that NIST's report would address all major recommendations contained in the FEMA report. But when NIST issued its report on World Trade Center 7, it did not mention the piece of steel with the Swiss cheese appearance. Indeed, NIST even claimed that not a single piece of steel from World Trade Center 7 had been recovered. This piece of steel, moreover, was only a small portion of the evidence ignored by NIST that steel had melted. The Deutsche Bank building, which was right next to the Twin Towers, was heavily contaminated by dust produced by their destruction. But Deutsche Bank's insurance company refused to pay for the cleanup, claiming that this dust had not resulted from the destruction of the World Trade Center, but was just ordinary building dust. So Deutsche Bank hired the RJ Group to do a study which showed that the dust in the Deutsche Bank was World Trade Center dust, which had a unique signature. Part of this signature was spherical iron particles. This meant, the RJ League group said, that iron had melted during the World Trade Center event, producing spherical metallic particles. The study even showed that whereas iron particles constitute only four hundredths of a percent of normal building dust, they constituted almost 6% of the World Trade Center dust, almost 150 times as much as normal. The RJ League study also found that temperatures had been reached at which lead would have undergone vaporization, meaning almost 3,200 degrees Fahrenheit. The U.S. Geological Survey carried out a study to aid the identification of World Trade Center dust components. Besides also finding uh, iron particles, the scientists involved in this study found that molybdenum had been melted. And this metal does not melt until it reaches almost 4,700 degrees Fahrenheit. NIST, however, did not mention either of these studies, even though the latter one was carried out by a fellow um, U.S. government agency. You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. 
This is Guns and Butter. NIST could not mention these studies because it was committed to the theory that the World Trade Center buildings were brought down by fire, while these studies clearly showed that something other than fire had been going on in these buildings. What was that? A report by several scientists, including chemist Niels Herrett of the University of Copenhagen, showed that the World Trade Center dust contained unreacted nanothermite, which, unlike ordinary thermite, which is an incendiary that starts fires, is a high explosive. This report by Herrett and his colleagues, who included Stephen Jones and Kevin Ryan, did not appear until late uh, this year, 2009, several months after the publication of NIST's final report last November. But NIST, as a matter of routine, should have tested for the presence of thermitic materials in the dust. The Guide for Fire Explosion Investigations, put out by the National Fire Protection Association, says that a search for evidence for explosives should be undertaken whenever there is high-order damage, which is characterized by shattering of the structure, producing small pulverized debris, Walls, roofs, and structural members are splintered or shattered while the building is completely demolished. That description applied to the destruction of the Twin Towers and World Trade Center. The next sentence, debris is thrown great distances, possibly hundreds of feet, applied to the destruction of the Twin Towers. And this was a fact that NIST itself had to admit in order to explain how the fires got started in World Trade Center 7. They said uh, uh, debris came from the North Tower, which was several hundred feet away. So NIST should have looked for signs of explosives, which would have included nanothermite. But when NIST was asked whether it had, it said no. A reporter asked Michael Newman, a NIST spokesman, about this failure, saying, what about the letter where NIST said it didn't look for evidence of explosives? Newman replied, right, because there was no evidence of that. But, asked the reporter, how can you know there's no evidence if you don't look for it first? Newman replied, if you're looking for something that isn't there, you're wasting your time and the taxpayer's money. You couldn't make this stuff up. When Sham Sunder, who headed up NIST investigation, gave his press conference in August of 2008, announcing the reason for the collapse of World Trade Center 7 is no longer a mystery, he began by saying, before I tell you what we found, I'd like to tell you what we did not find. We did not find any evidence that explosives were used to bring the building down. Sunder thereby made clear that this was NIST's most important conclusion, just as it had been its most important conclusion about the Twin Towers. However, although Sunder claimed that this conclusion was based on good science, a conclusion has no scientific validity if it can be reached only by ignoring half of the relevant evidence. In addition to the ignored evidence already pointed out, NIST also, in its investigation, ignored reports that the rubble contained lots of molten metal, which most people described as molten steel. Firefighter Philip Rivolo, for example, said, 
uh, speaking of uh, one of the towers, you'd get down below and you'd see molten steel, molten steel running down the channel rails like you're in a foundry, like lava. Peter Tully, president of Tully Construction, which was involved in the cleanup operation, said he saw pools of literally molten steel. However, when John Gross, one of the main authors of NIST reports, was asked about the molten steel, he said to the questioner, I challenge your basic premise that there was a pool of molten steel, adding, I know of absolutely no eyewitness who has said so. However, in addition to Rivolo and Tully, the eyewitnesses who said so included Leslie Robertson, a member of the engineering firm that had designed the Twin Towers, Dr. Ronald Berger of the National Center for Environmental Health, Dr. Allison Gay of the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, who had headed up a scientific team that went to the site shortly after 9-11 at the request of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Also, the fact that molten steel was also found at the World Trade Center 7 was added by Mark Loiseau, the president of Controlled Demolition, Inc., which was involved in the cleanup. And yet, John Gross suggested that no credible witnesses had reported molten steel. This appears to have been a gross lie. Besides ignoring physical evidence that explosives had been used, NIST also ignored testimonial evidence. In its 2005 report on the Twin Towers, NIST ignored dozens of testimonies provided by reporters, police officers, and World Trade Center employees, along with 118 testimonies provided by members of the Fire Department of New York. NIST even explicitly denied the existence of these reports, saying, there was no evidence collected by the Fire Department of New York of any blast or implosions that would have suggested that explosives had been going off. However, when a group of scholars, including scientists and lawyers, called NIST on this false statement, NIST refined its meaning in a private letter to them, saying, NIST reviewed all of the interviews conducted by the Fire Department of New York of firefighters, 500 interviews. Taken as a whole, the interviews did not support the contention that explosives played a role in the collapse of the World Trade Center towers. So although NIST had said in its report that there was no testimonial evidence for explosives, it now seemed to be saying that because only 118 out of 500 people of the Fire Department of New York had reported explosives, the testimonies taken as a whole do not support the idea that explosions were going off, so that NIST was justified in claiming that there was no evidence to support the idea that explosives had been used. Imagine an investigation of a murder on the streets of San Francisco. Of the 100 people who were at the scene at the time, 25 of them report seeing Pete Smith shoot the victim. But the police released Pete Smith, saying that, taken as a whole, the testimonies did not point to his guilt. This would be NIST-style forensic science. NIST continued this approach in its World Trade Center report. There had been several credible reports of explosions. A reporter for the New York Daily News said, there was a rumble. The building's top row of windows popped out. 
Then all the windows on the 39th floor popped out. Then the 38th floor, pop, 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 all you heard until the building sunk into a rising cloud of gray. New York PD officer Craig Bartmer said, I was real close to Building 7 when it came down. All of a sudden, I looked up, and the thing started peeling in on itself. I started running, and the whole time you're hearing, boom, 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 boom. Besides ignoring these and other reports of explosions made by people outside Building 7, NIST distorted the testimony of two highly credible men who were inside, Michael Hess, who was New York City's corporation counsel, and Barry Jennings, the deputy director of the Emergency Services Department of the New York City Housing Authority. Immediately after the North Tower was struck that morning, both men followed the instruction that, whenever there was an emergency, they were to meet Mayor Giuliani at his emergency management center on the 23rd floor of Building 7. The North Tower was struck at 8.46, so they arrived about 9 o'clock. They found, however, that everyone had already left. Calling to find out what they should do, they were told to get out of the building quickly. So finding that the elevator would not work, evidently because the attack on the South Tower had occurred and that knocked out the electricity for the whole system, they started running down the stairs. But when they got to the sixth floor, Jennings reported, there was an enormous explosion that knocked the landing out from under them. And he was able just barely to hold on and then pull himself up and then get back up to the eighth floor where they broke a window and signaled for help. Firemen came to rescue them, Jennings said, but then ran away. Coming back after a while, the firemen again started to rescue them but they ran away again. They had to run away the first time, Jennings explained, because of the collapse of the South Tower, which had occurred at 9.59. They were on the back of the building, so they couldn't see this, but they realized later that this is what was going on. And they ran away the second time because the North Tower collapsed, which occurred at 10.28. On that basis, Jennings told Dylan Avery in an interview in 2007, he knew that when the big explosion occurred, both buildings were still standing, meaning both towers. Finally, when the firemen returned after the second tower collapsed, Hess and Jennings were interviewed. This must have been sometime between 11 o'clock and 11.30, because at 11.57, Hess gave an on-the-street interview several blocks away. Jennings also gave an on-the-street interview. Both men reported that they had been trapped for some time. Hess specified about an hour and a half. This story was obviously very threatening to NIST. It was going to claim that when Building 7 came down at 521 that afternoon, it did so solely because of fires. There were no explosions to help things along. But here were two city officials reporting that a big explosion had gone off pretty early in the morning, evidently before 9.30. In his interview for Dylan Avery, moreover, Jennings said that the big explosion that trapped them was simply the first of many. He also said that when the firefighter took them down to the lobby, he saw that it had been totally destroyed and that they were stepping over people. Contrary to the official story, according to which no one was killed 
in Building 7. Well, what could NIST do? It simply ignored Jennings' report about the lobby, and with regard to the time that Jennings and Hess had been trapped, they followed the line that had been taken by Rudy Giuliani in a book written in 2002, according to which the event that Hess and Jennings took to be an explosion within World Trade Center 7 was simply the impact of debris from the collapse of the North Tower. But that collapse did not occur until 1028, whereas the event as described by Hess and Jennings had occurred at least an hour earlier. Also, Jennings said that the South Tower as well as the North Tower was still standing when the event he called an explosion occurred. And that is surely what he told NIST when it interviewed him as well as Hess in the spring of 2004. Another problem was that Hess had said that they had been trapped for about an hour and a half. If the event that trapped them did not happen until almost 10.30, as NIST claims, then they would not have been rescued until before noon. And sure enough, in an interim report on World Trade Center 7 put out by NIST in 2004, it claimed that Hess and Jennings had been rescued at 12.10 to 12.15 p.m., but that is clearly false, given the fact that Hess was being interviewed several blocks away before noon. NIST would, of course, deny that it had distorted Jennings' testimony. But when we sent a Freedom of Information Act uh, request to NIST to obtain a copy of the Hess and Jennings interview, it declined on the basis of a provision that allows for an exemption from FOIA requests if the information is not directly related to the building failure. NIST is thereby suggesting that the report of a massive explosion within a building could have had nothing to do with that building's collapse. Using such an obviously phony reason seemed to be NIST's way of saying, there's no way that you're going to see these interviews. You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center 7. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In any case, NIST's attempt to neutralize the testimony of Barry Jennings was aided by the BBC, which interviewed Jennings and then obviously changed the timeline so that the narrator with her reassuring voice could say, at 1028, the North Tower collapses. This time, Tower 7 takes a direct hit from the collapsing building. Early evidence of explosives were just debris from a falling skyscraper. Last week, Mike Rudin, who produced this BBC program, called me about interviewing me for my little book, Osama bin Laden, Dead or Alive. I told him that I had a book coming out shortly about World Trade Center 7 that, after seeing it, Um, he probably wouldn't want to interview me. When he asked why, I said because I pointed out that he had obviously distorted the timeline of Jennings' account. When he denied this, I said, okay, show me the uncut, unedited interview. And if it turned out that Rudin had been right, that he hadn't falsified Jennings' account, I would have told the world. For some reason, however, Mike Rudin declined. 
This BBC program had appeared in July of 2008. The first version of NIST's final report, its draft for public comment, was to be released at a press conference on August 21st, at which time Sunder would announce that the mystery of the collapse had been solved. Two days prior to that, Barry Jennings reportedly died, and died very mysteriously. No one has been willing to provide any information as to how or why this 53-year-old man suddenly died. Dylan Avery, trying to find out something, hired a private investigator, reputed to be one of the best in the state of New York, to find out what she could. He used his credit card to pay her a considerable fee. Within 24 hours, however, Dylan Avery received a message from her saying, due to some of the information I have uncovered, I have determined that this is a job for the police. I have refunded your credit card. Please do not contact me again about this individual. This is not the response one would expect, Avery observed, if she had merely found that Jennings had passed away innocently in a hospital. The dedication page on my book, The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7, says, to the memory of Barry Jennings, whose truth-telling may have cost him his life. Be that as it may, his death was very convenient for NIST, which did not need to fear that Jennings might hold his own press conference to say that NIST had lied about his testimony. It was also convenient for the BBC, which could now put out a second version of its program on World Trade Center 7, this time including Michael Hess. In the first version, the BBC had pretended that Jennings had been in the building all by himself. Even though Jennings would say, we did this and then we did that, the BBC would speak only of Jennings, never mentioning the fact that Hess was with him. But in the new version, which was aired at the end of October 2008, Hess was the star. While admitting that back on 9-11, he had assumed that there had been an explosion in the basement. He said, I know now this was caused by the northern half of number one, the North Tower, falling on the southern half of our building. Exactly what Giuliani had said in his 2002 book. The fact that Hess has supported Giuliani's claims should come as no surprise since 2002 Hess has been Giuliani's business partner. In spite of the fact that Hess could in no way be considered an impartial witness, Mike Rudin portrayed him as such. On his BBC blog, Rudin said that some self-styled truthers had charged that the BBC, in presenting Barry Jennings' testimony, had misrepresented the chronology. But, said Rudin triumphantly, Michael Hess in his first interview since 9-11, confirms our timeline. But Hess's account could be said to confirm the BBC timeline only if it were a credible account. In my book, however, I show that Hess's account is riddled with problems so that anyone can see easily that he was lying. Thus far, I've spoken about the first half of my book, which deals with NIST negative claim, namely, that it had found no evidence that explosives were used to bring down World Trade Center 7. 
NIST could make this argument, I have pointed out, only by committing two kinds of scientific fraud, ignoring relevant evidence and falsifying evidence, in this case, the testimony of Barry Jennings. The second half of my book deals with NIST's own theory as to how fire brought the building down. To develop such a theory, NIST had to falsify and fabricate data on a possibly unprecedented scale. And yet, after all of that, it had to violate one of the basic principles of science, thou shalt not affirm miracles. You perhaps know the cartoon about this. A physics professor has filled several boards with formula and equations, at the bottom of which we read, then a miracle happens. In science, you cannot appeal to miracles, whether explicitly or only implicitly by implying that some basic law of physics has been violated. And yet this is what NIST does. But for describing its miracle story, I will point out three especially obvious examples of scientific fraud committed by NIST uh, before it resorted to this desperate expedient. One of these involves shear studs. NIST's explanation as to how uh, fire caused Building 7 to collapse starts with thermal expansion, meaning that the fire heated up the steel, thereby causing it to expand, mainly to elongate. A steel beam on the 13th floor, NIST claims, caused a steel girder attached to column 79 to break loose. Having lost its support, column 79 failed. And this failure started a chain reaction in which all 82 of the building steel columns failed. Without getting into the question of whether this is even remotely possible, let us just focus on the question, why did that girder fail? It failed, Nist said, because it was not connected to the floor slab with shear studs. Nist wrote, in World Trade Center, no studs were installed on the girders. Floor beams had shear studs, but the girders that supported the floor beams did not have shear studs. This point was crucial to Nist's answer to a commonly asked question. Why did fire cause World Trade Center 7 to collapse when fire had never before brought down a steel-framed high-rise building, uh, even though some of these buildings had had much bigger and longer-lasting fires? Nist's answer was differences in design. One of those crucial differences, Nist stated repeatedly, was the absence of girder shear studs that would have provided lateral restraint. But this was a fabrication on NIST's part. How can we know that? All we need to do is look at that same interim report from uh, 2004, which NIST had published uh, before it had developed uh, this theory about uh, thermal expansion and girder failure. This 2004 report stated very clearly that girders as well as floor beams had been attached to the floor by means of shear studs. We have here as clear a case of fabrication as one will see, with NIST simply making up a fact in order to meet the needs of its new theory, even though it contradicted what it had written 
four years earlier. NIST also contradicted its interim report in telling a lie about the fires in the building. NIST claims that there were very big, very hot fires covering much of the north face of the 12th floor at 5 p.m. This claim is essential to NIST's explanation as to why the building collapsed 21 minutes later. However, if you look at NIST's interim report published before it had developed this theory, you will find this statement. Around 4.45 p.m., a photograph showed fires on floors 7, 8, 9, and 11 near the middle of the north face. Floor 12 was burned out by this time. Other photographs even show that the 12th floor fire had virtually burned out by 4 o'clock, and yet NIST now claims that fires were still going strong on this floor at 5 o'clock, another clear case of fabrication. A third case, again, involves shear studs, this time the shear studs that connected the steel beams to the floor slab. NIST claims that, due to the failure of the crucial girder discussed earlier, the floor beams were able to expand without restraint. But each of those beams was connected to the floor slab by 28 high-strength shear studs. These studs should have provided plenty of constraint. They would have, NIST says, except for the fact that they all broke. Why did they break? Because of what NIST calls differential thermal expansion, which is simply a technical way of saying that in response to the heat from the fires, the steel beams expanded more than the floor slabs did. But why would have that been the case? Steel and concrete have virtually the same coefficient of thermal expansion, which is simply a technical way of saying that they expand virtually the same amount in response to fire. If that were not the case, reinforced concrete, that is concrete reinforced with steel, would break up when weather got very hot or very cold, and yet it doesn't. You're listening to Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show, The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. NIST itself points out that steel and concrete have similar coefficients of thermal expansion. So why does NIST claim that the shear studs broke because of differential thermal expansion? To understand this point, you need to understand that NIST theory is an almost entirely computer-based theory. NIST fed various variables into its computer program, which then supposedly told it how World Trade Center 7 would have reacted to its fires. So what did NIST feed into its computer that caused the computer to say that the steel beams uh, would have expanded so much more than the concrete slab that all of the shear studs would have broken? The answer is given in this bland statement. No thermal expansion or material degradation was considered for the concrete slab as the slab was not heated in this analysis. When I first read this statement, I had to rub my eyes. Surely, I thought, I had misread the statement because a few pages earlier, NIST had said, Differential thermal expansion occurred between the steel floor beams and concrete slab when the composite floor 
was subjected to fire. Well, the composite floor, by definition, is simply the uh, floor beams made composite with the floor slab by means of the shear studs. So NIST had clearly said in stating that uh, the composite floor had been subjected to fire that both the steel beams and the concrete slab had been heated. But then in the eye-rubbing passage, NIST said when doing its computer simulation, it told the computer that only the steel beams had been heated. The concrete floor uh, was not. So of course the steel beams would have expanded while the floor slab stayed stationary, thereby causing the shear studs to, to break, after which the steel beams could expand like crazy and bump into column 79, which then causes the whole building to come down. You know that uh, someone has produced a comic book version of the official story about 9-11? That's pretty funny because the official story already is the comic book version. In any case, I now come to NIST's miracle. Members of the 9-11 Truth Movement had almost from the first been pointing out that World Trade Center came down at the same rate as a free-falling object, or at least virtually so. In this draft for public comment, it denied this, saying that the time for the upper 18 floors, and that's all you can see on the video, it then goes below the level where the cameras could, could catch it. Um, the time for the upper 18 floors to collapse was approximately 40% longer than the computed freefall time and was consistent with physical principles. Implicit in this statement is that any assertion that the building did come down in freefall would not be consistent with physical principles, meaning the principles of physics. Explaining why not, Sham Sunder said at a technical briefing, a free fall time would be the fall time of an object that has no structural components below it. The time that it took for those 17 floors to disappear was roughly 40% longer than free fall. And that is not at all unusual because there was structural resistance that was provided in this particular case. And you had a sequence of structural failures that had to take place. Everything was not instantaneous. However, high school physics teacher David Chandler confronted Shunder at this briefing, pointing out that Sunder's 40% claim contradicts a publicly visible, easily measurable quantity, meaning on the, on the videos. The following week, Chandler placed a video on the internet showing that by measuring this publicly visible quantity, anyone knowing elementary physics could see that for about two and a half seconds, the acceleration of the building is indistinguishable from freefall. Finally, Chandler wrote a comment to NIST saying that acknowledgement of and accounting for an extended period of freefall in the collapse of World Trade Center 7 must be a priority if NIST is to be taken seriously. Amazingly, NIST did acknowledge freefall in its final report. It tried to disguise it, but the admission is there on page 607. Dividing the building's descent into three stages, it describes the second stage as 
a free-fall descent over approximately eight stories at gravitational acceleration for approximately 2.25 seconds. Gravitational acceleration is simply a synonym for free-fall acceleration. So, after presenting 606 pages of descriptions, testimonies, photographs, graphs, analyses, explanations, and mathematical formula, NIST on page 607 says, in effect, then a miracle happens. Why this would be a miracle was explained by Chandler, who said, free fall can only be achieved if there is zero resistance to the motion. The implications of Chandler's remark, the implication is that by the principles of physics, the upper portion of building seven could have come down in free fall only if something had removed all of the steel and concrete that would have provided resistance and only explosives of some sort could have removed them. If they had not been removed and the upper floors had come down in free fall anyway, even for only a second or two, a miracle would have happened. That was what Sunder himself had explained the previous August, saying that a free-falling object would be one that has no structural components below it to offer resistance. Having stated in August that free-fall could not have happened, NIST also stated that it did not happen, saying WT7 did not enter free-fall. But then in November, while still defending the same theory, which rules out explosives and thereby rules out freefall, NIST admitted that, as an empirical fact, freefall happened. For a period of two and a fourth seconds, NIST admitted the descent of World Trade Center 7 was characterized by gravitational acceleration freefall. Knowing that it had thereby affirmed a miracle, meaning a violation of the laws of physics, NIST no longer claimed that its analysis was consistent with physical principles. In its draft put out in August, NIST had repeatedly said that its analysis of the collapse was consistent with physical principles. One encounters this phrase time and time again, but in its final report, this phrase is no more to be found. NIST thereby admitted, for those with eyes to see, that its report on World Trade Center 7 by admitting free fall while continuing to deny that explosives were used is not consistent with the principles of physics. And yet the mainstream press will not report this admission. So the press continues to support the notion that anyone who questions the official reports about 9-11 is unfit for public service. To conclude, the 9-11 truth movement has long considered the collapse of Building 7 to be the Achilles heel of the official story about 9-11, the part of this story that, by being most vulnerable, could be used to bring down the whole body of lives. My book, The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7, why the final official report about 9-11 is unscientific and false, shows that the official account of this building is indeed extremely vulnerable to critique, so vulnerable that to see the falsity of this account, you only need to read NIST's attempt to defend it, noting the obvious lies in NIST's report and its violation of basic principles of physics and its contradictions of its own previous work. 
I hope that my book will indeed help bring down that body of lies that some of us call the Bush-Cheney conspiracy theory, according to which Al-Qaeda hijackers, by flying planes into two buildings of the World Trade Center, brought down three of them, an obviously false conspiracy theory that is still being used, among other things, to kill women, children, and other innocent people in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you. Uh, I got one question I will uh, begin with. Um, Bush appointed to NIST the very same people employed by corporations that produce the nanothermite and the uh, nanoanthrax, it seems. Like, these people are blocking a legitimate investigation. Uh, what say you? Um, yes. <laughs> Um, in my book, I have a section uh, on NIST's knowledge of nanothermite because um, they pretend like in their report they've never heard of nanothermite. Oh, when the question of thermitic materials come up, they only will mention ordinary thermite, which is an incendiary. And um, nanothermite is a high explosion. So even though you think it has a similar name, they're qualitatively different. And yet NIST pretends like, gee. Yeah. Well, uh, Kevin Ryan had done uh, yeoman service on this and went through and did the research and showed that NIST was involved with several, several uh, agencies and uh, corporations um, that were involved in uh, front-line nanoscience and nanotechnology. And um, NIST even has its own uh, center for nanoscience and nanotechnology. And some of its uh, people um, have been heavily involved in this kind of research, some of the people on its uh, own staff and then uh, uh, people who are advisors to it. So they're clearly dissembling when they suggest, they imply, that uh, they have no clue about uh, something called nanothermite. Uh, so, um, yes, uh, the, the idea that NIST was to do this investigation, and if this uh, study uh, is right, and it certainly seems to be, that nanothermite was at least one of the kinds of explosives and incendiaries used to bring down the building, then uh, we would have another classic case of uh, the foxes uh, guarding the hen house, uh, or in this case, the foxes protecting the other foxes. Thank you for that question. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. You've been listening to a keynote address by Dr. David Ray Griffin. Today's show has been the mysterious collapse of World Trade Center 7. David Ray Griffin, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy of Religion and Theology at the Claremont School of Theology, has published over 35 books and 150 articles. He has written eight books on the subject of 9-11, including The New Pearl Harbor Revisited, Osama Bin Laden, 
Dead or Alive, and his latest book on the new NIST report and Building 7, entitled The Mysterious Collapse of World Trade Center 7, Why the Final Official Report About 9-11 is Unscientific and False. Dr. Griffin's books on 9-11 are available at www.911truth.org. That's the numbers 911truth.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's blfaulkner at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Our website, gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. You dig me? You got me?